This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading... I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. As always, the music that you're listening to is by James Lepkowski, playing this on a little ukulele guitar metal thing that he made. Tonight, a book that I've never read, but flipped through the first couple chapters and figured this might be a good one to go to sleep to. It's As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. I know the title sounds a little dark, but the second I saw it, I thought, as I lay sleeping, I don't know. It seemed pretty interchangeable. 
the seasons are changing. Things are getting a little bit gloomier, maybe, which I actually like a lot. In this October, we're going to be reading some kind of spookier stories. So maybe this is a good transition into that. Well, now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself mount into your bed. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Jewel and I come up from the field, following the path in single file. Although I'm 15 feet ahead of him, anyone watching us from the cotton house can see Jewel's frayed and broken straw hat, a full head above my own. The path runs straight as a plumb line, worn smooth by feet and baked brick hard by July, between the green rows of laid-by cotton to the cotton house in the center of the field where it turns and circles the cotton house at four soft right angles and goes on across the field again, worn so by feet in fading precision. The cotton house is of rough logs, from between which the chinking is long fallen, square with a broken roof set at a single pitch. It leans in empty and shimmering dilapidation in the sunlight, a single broad window and two opposite walls giving onto the approaches of the path. When we reach it, I turn and follow the path which circles the house. Jewel, fifteen feet behind me, looking straight ahead, steps in a single stride through the window. Still staring straight ahead, his pale eyes like wood set into his wooden face. He crosses the floor in four strides with a rigid gravity of a cigar store Indian, dressed in patch overalls and endued with life from the hips down, and steps in a single stride through the opposite window into the path again just as I come around the corner. In single file and five feet apart, Jewel now in front, we go on up the path toward the foot of the bluff. Tull's wagon stands beside the spring, hitched to the rail, the reins wrapped around the seat stanchion. In the wagon bed are two chairs. Jewel stops at the spring and takes the gourd from the willow branch and drinks. I pass him and mount the path beginning to hear Cash's saw. When I reach the top, he has quit sawing. Standing in a litter of chips, he is fitting two of the boards together. Between the shadow spaces, they are yellow as gold, like soft gold, bearing on their flanks and smooth undulations the marks of an ad's blaze, a good carpenter Cash is. He holds the two planks on the trestle, fitted along the edges in a quarter of the finished box. He kneels and squints along the edge of them. Then he lowers them and takes up the ads. A good carpenter. Addie Bundren could not want a better one, a better box to lie in. It will give her confidence and comfort. I go into the house, followed by the chuck, chuck, chuck of the ads. Cora. So I saved out the eggs and baked yesterday. The cakes turned out right well. We depend a lot on our chickens. They are good layers, 
what few we have left after the possums and such. Snakes too in the summer. A snake will break up a hen house quicker than anything. So after they were going to cost so much more than Mr. Tull thought, and after I promised that the difference in the number of eggs would make it up, I had to be more careful than ever, because it was on my final say-so we took them. We could have stocked cheaper chickens, but I gave my promise, as Miss Longington said, when she advised me to get a good breed, because Mr. Tull himself admits that a good breed of cows or hog pays in the long run. So when we lost so many of them, we couldn't afford to use the eggs ourselves, because I could not have had Mr. Tull chide me when it was on my way, so we took them. So when Miss Longington told me about the cakes, I thought I could bake them and earn enough at one time to increase the net value of the flock, the equivalent of two head. And that by saving the eggs out one at a time, even the eggs wouldn't be costing anything. And that week they laid so well that I not only saved out enough eggs above what we had engaged to sell to bake the cakes with, I had saved enough so that the flour and the sugar and the stove wood would not be costing anything. So I baked yesterday, more careful than I ever baked in my life, and the cakes turned out right well. But when we got to town this morning, Miss Longington told me that the lady had changed her mind and was not going to have the party after all. She ought to have taken those cakes anyway, Kate said. Well, I say, I reckon she never had no use for them now. She ought to have taken them, Kate says, but those rich town ladies can change their minds. Poor folks can't. Riches is nothing in the face of the Lord, for he can see into the heart. Maybe I can sell them at the bazaar Saturday, I say. They turned out real well. You can't get two dollars a piece for them, Kate says. Well, it isn't like they cost me anything, I say. I saved them out and swapped a dozen of them for the sugar and flour. It isn't like the cakes cost me anything. As Mr. Tall himself realizes that the eggs I saved were over and beyond what he had engaged to sell. So it was like we had found the eggs or so they had been given to us. She ought to have taken those cakes when she came as gave you her word. Kate says, the Lord can see into the heart. If it is his will that some folks has different ideas of honesty from other folks, it is not my place to question his decree. I reckon she never had any use for them, I say. They turned out real well, too. The quilt is drawn up to her chin, hot as it is with only her two hands and her face outside. She's propped up on the pillow, with her head raised so she can see out the window and we can hear him every time he takes up the ads or the saw. If we were deaf, we could almost watch her face and hear him, see him. Her face is wasted away, so that the bones draw just under the skin white lines. Her eyes are like two candles, when you watch them gutter down into the sockets of iron candlesticks. But the eternal and the everlasting salvation and grace is not upon her. They turned out real nice, I say but not like the cakes Addie used to bake. You can see that girl's washing and ironing in the pillow slip, if ironed it ever was. Maybe it will reveal her blindness to her, laying there at the mercy and the ministration of four men and a tomboy girl. 
There's not a woman in this section could ever bake with Hattie Bundren, I say. First thing we'll know, she'll be up and baking again, and then we won't have any sale for ours at all. Under the quill she makes no more of a hump than a rail would, and the only way you can tell she's breathing is by the sound of the mattress sucks. Even the hair at her cheek does not move. Even when that girl is standing right over her, fanning her with the fan. While we watch, she swaps the fan to the other hand without stopping it. Is she sleeping, Kate whispers. She's just watching Cash yonder, the girl said. We can hear the saw on the board. It sounds like snoring. Eula turns on the trunk and looks out the window. Her necklace looks real nice with a red hat. You wouldn't think it only cost 25 cents. She ought to have taken those cakes, Kate says. I could have used the money real well, but it's not like they cost me anything except the baking. I can tell them that anybody is likely to make a miscue, but it's not all of them that can get out of it without loss. I can tell him. It's not everybody that can eat their mistakes. I can tell him. Someone comes to the hall. It is Darrell. He does not look in as he passes the door. Eula watches him as he goes on and passes from sight again toward the back. Her hand rises and touches her beads lightly, and then her hair. When she finds me watching her, her eyes go blank. Darl. Pa and Vernon are sitting on the back porch. Pa is tilting snuff from the lid as his snuff box into his lower lip, holding the lip outdrawn between thumb and finger. They look around as I cross the porch and dip the gourd into water and bucket and drink. Where's Jewel? Pa says. When I was a boy, I first learned how much better water will taste when it... When I was a boy, I first learned how much better water tastes when it has set a while in a cedar bucket, warmish cool with a faint taste like the hot July wind and cedar tree smells. That's to set at least six hours and be drunk from a gourd. Water should never be drunk from metal. That night it is better still. I used to lie in the pallet in the hall, waiting until I could hear them all sleep, so I could get up and go back to the bucket. It would be black, the shelf black, the still surface of the water and the round orifice of nothingness, where before I stirred it awake with the dipper, I could see maybe a star or two in the bucket, and maybe in the dipper a star or two before I drank. After that I was bigger, older, then I would wait until they all went to sleep, so I could lie with my shirt tail up, hearing them asleep, feeling myself without touching myself, feeling the cool silence blowing upon my parts, and wondering if Cash was yonder in the darkness doing it too had been doing it perhaps for the last two years before I could have wanted to, or could have. Pa's feet are badly splayed, his toes cramped and bent and warped, with no toenail at all on his little toes, from working so hard in the wet in homemade shoes when he was a boy. Beside his chair is broken sit. They look as though they have been hacked with a blunt axe out of pig iron. Vernon has been to town, I've never seen him go into town in overalls. His wife, they say, 
She taught school too once. I fling the dipper dregs to the ground and wipe my mouth on my sleeve. It is going to rain before morning. Maybe before dark. Down to the barn, I say. Harnessing the team. Down there fooling with that horse. He will go on through the barn, into the pasture. The horse will not be in sight. He's up there among the pine seedlings in the cool. Jewel whistles, once and shrill. The horse snorts, then Jill sees him, glanting for a gaudy instant among the blue shadows. Jewel whistles again. The horse comes dropping down the slope, stiff-legged, his ears cocking and flicking, his mismatched eyes rolling, and fetches up twenty feet away, broadside on, watching Jewel over his shoulder in an attitude kittenish and alert. Come here, sir, Jewel says. He moves. Moving that quick his coat, bunching, tongue swirling like so many flames. With tossing mane and tail and rolling eye, the horse makes another short, curveting rush, and stops again, feet bunched, watching Jewel. Jewel walks steadily toward him, his hands at his sides. Save for Jewel's legs, they are like two figures, carved for a tableau savage in the sun. When Jewel can almost touch him, the horse stands on his hind legs and slashes down at Jewel. Then Jewel is enclosed by a glittering maze of hooves, as by an illusion of wings. Among them, beneath the upreared chest, he moves a flashing limberness of a snake. For an instant before the jerk comes into his arms, he sees his whole body earth free, horizontal, whipping snake limber, until he finds the horse's nostrils and touches earth again. Then they are rigid, motionless, terrific, the horse back thrust on stiffened, quivering legs with lowered head. Jewel with dug heels, shuddering off the horse's wind with one hand, with the other patting the horse neck in short strokes, myriad and caressing, cursing the horse with obscene ferocity. They stand in rigid, terrific hiatus, the horse trembling and groaning. Then Jewel is on the horse's back. He flows upward in a stooping swirl, like the lash of a whip, his body in midair, shaped to the horse. For another moment, the horse stands spraddled with lowered head before it bursts into motion. They descend the hill in a series of spine-jolting jumps, jewel-high, leech-like on the withers, to the fence where the horse bunches to a scattering halt again. Well, Jewel says, you can quit now, if you got a plenty. Inside the barn, Jewel slides running to the ground before the horse stops. The horse enters the stall, Jewel following. Without looking back, the horse kicks at him slamming a single hoof into the wall with a pistol-like report. Jewel kicks him in the stomach. The horse arches his neck back, crop-toothed. Jewel strikes him across the face with his fist and slides onto the trough and mounts upon it. Clinging to the hay rack, he lowers his head and peers out across the stall tops and through the doorway. The path is empty. From here he cannot even hear, cash sawing. 
He reaches up and drags down the hay in hurried arms full and crams it into the rack. Eat, he says. Get the goddamn stuff out of sight while you've got a chance. You puzzle-cutted bastard. You sweet son of a bitch, he says. Jewel. It's because he stays out there, right under the window, hammering and sawing on that goddamn box. Where she's got to see him. Where every breath she draws is full of his knocking and sawing. Where she can see him saying, See, see what a good one I'm making for you. I told him to go somewhere else. I said, good God, do you want to see her in it? It's like when he was a little boy, and she says if she had some fertilizer, she would try to raise some flowers, and he had taken a bread pan and brought it back from the barn full of dung. And now, the mother's sitting there like buzzards, waiting, fanning themselves, because I said, if you wouldn't keep on sawing and nailing at it, until a man can't sleep, and even her hands laying on the quilt like two of them roots dug up and tried to wash, and you couldn't get them clean. I can see the fan in Dewey Dell's arm. I said if you just let her alone, sawing and knocking, and keeping the air always moving so fast in her face that when you're tired you can't breathe it, and that goddamn ad's going one lick less, one lick less, one lick less until everybody that passes in the road will have to stop and see it and say what a fine carpenter he is. If it had just been me when Cash fell off that church, and if it had just been me when Pa laid sick with that load of wood fell on him, it would not be happening with every bastard in the county coming in to stare at her because if there is a God, what the hell is he for? It would just be me and her on a high hill, and me rolling the rocks down the hill at their faces, picking them up and throwing them down the hill, faces and teeth, and all by God until she was quiet, and not that goddamn ad's going one lick less, one lick less, and we could be quiet. Darl. We watch him come around the corner and mount the steps. He does not look at us. You ready, he says. If you're hitched up, I say. I say, wait. He stops, looking at Pa. Vernon spits without moving. He spits with decorous and deliberate precision into the pocked dust below the porch. Pa rubs his hands slowly on his knees. He's gazing out beyond the crest of the bluff, out across the land. Jewel watches him a moment. And he goes to the pail and drinks again. I miss like indecision as much as you're a man, Pa says. It means three dollars, I say. The shirt across Pa's hump is faded lighter than the rest of it. There's no sweat stain on his shirt. I've never seen a sweat stain on his shirt. He was sick once from working in the sun when he was 22 years old. He tells people that if he ever sweats, he will die. I suppose he believes it. But if she don't last until you get back, he says, she will be disappointed. Vernon spits into the dust. But it will rain before morning. She's counted on it, Pa says. She'll want to start right away. I know her. <laughs>
I promised her I'd keep the team here and ready, and she's counting on it. We'll need that three dollars then, sure, I say. He gazes out over the land, rubbing his hands on his knees. Since he lost his teeth, his mouth collapses in slow repetition when he dips. The stubble gives his lower face that appearance that old dogs have. You better make up your mind soon, so we can get there and get a load before dark, I say. Ma ain't that sick, Jewel says. Shut up, Darl. That's right, Vernon says. She seems more like herself today than she has in a week. Time you and Jewel get back, she'll be setting up. You ought to know, Jewel says. You've been here often enough looking at her. You or your folks. Vernon looks at him. Jewel's eyes look like pale wood in his high-blooded face. He's a head taller than any of the rest of us. Always has. I told him that's why Ma always whipped him and petted him more. Because he was peekling around the house more. That's why she named him Jewel, I told them. Shut up, Jewel, Pa says. As though he's not listening much. He gazes out across the land, rubbing his knees. You could borrow the loan of Vernon's team, and we could catch up with you, I say. She didn't wait for us. Ah, shut your goddamn mouth, Jewel says. She wants to go in Orn, Pa says. He rubs his knees. Don't hear, man, dislike it more. It's laying there, watching Cash whittle on that dam. Jewel says. He says it harshly, savagely, but he does not say the word. Like a little boy in the dark to flail his courage and suddenly aghast into silence by his own noise. She wanted that like she wants to go in her own wagon, Pa says. She rest easier for knowing it's a good one and private. She was ever a private woman. You know it well. Then let it be private, Jewel says. How the hell can you expect it to be? He looks at the back of Pa's head, his eyes like his pale wooden eyes. Show, Vernon says. She'll hold on till it's finished. She'll hold on till everything's ready, till her own good time. With the roads like they are now, it won't take you no time to get her to town. It's fixing up to rain, Pa says. I'm a luckless man. I have ever been. He rubs his hand on his knees. Is that Darren doctor, liable to come at any time? I couldn't get word to him till so late. If he was to come tomorrow and tell her that the time was nigh, she wouldn't wait. I know her. Wagon or no wagon, she wouldn't wait. Then she'd be upset, and I wouldn't upset her for the living world. With that family burying ground in Jefferson and them of her blood waiting for her there. She'll be impatient. I promised my word me and the boys would get her there quick, as mules could walk it, so she could rest quiet. He rubs his hand on his knees. No man ever misliked him more. If everybody wasn't burning hell to get her there, Jewel says in that harsh, savage voice, with Cash all day long right near the window, hammering and sawing and that, it was her wish, Pa says. You got no affection nor gentleness for her. He never had. We would be beholden to no man, he says. Me and her. 
we have never yet been, and she will rest quieter for knowing it, and that it was her blood sawed out the boards and drove the nails. She was ever one to clean up after herself. It means three dollars, I say. Do you want us to go or not? Pa rubs his knees. We'll be back by tomorrow sundown. Well, Pa says. He looks out over the land, Ari Harry, mouthing the snuff slowly against his gums. Come on, Jewel says. He goes down the steps. Vernon spits neatly into the dust. By sundown now, Pa says. I would not keep her waiting. Jewel glances back, and he goes on around the house. I enter the hall, hearing the voices before I reach the door, tilting a little down the hill, as our house does. A breeze draws through the hall all the time, unsplanting. A feather drop near the front door will rise and brush along the ceiling, slanting backward until it reaches the downturning current at the back door so with voices. As you enter the hall, they sound as though they were speaking out of the air about your head. Cora. It was the sweetest thing I ever saw. It was like he knew he would never see her again. That aunt's bundren was driving him from his mother's deathbed, never to see her in this world again. I always said Darrell was different from those others. I always said he was the only one of them that has mother's nature, had any natural affection. Not that jewel, the one who labored so to bear and coddled and petted so, and him flinging into tantrums or sulking spells, inventing devilment to devil her until I would have frailed him time and time. Not him to come and tell her goodbye. Not him to miss a chance to make that extra three dollars at the price of his mother's goodbye kiss. Abundant through and through, loving nobody, caring for nothing except how to get something with the least amount of work. Mr. Tull says Darl asked them to wait. He said Darl almost begged them on his knees not to force to leave their... He said Darl almost begged them on his knees not to force him to leave her in her condition. But nothing would do but Ants and Jewel must make that three dollars. Nobody that knows Ants could have expected different. But to think of that boy, that jewel, selling all those years of self-denial and downright partiality, they couldn't fool me. Mr. Tull says Mrs. Bundren liked Jewel the least of all, and I knew better. I knew she was partial to him, to the same quality in him that let her put up with Ants Bundren when Mr. Tull said she ought to have poisoned him for three dollars denying his dying mother the goodbye kiss. Why, for the last three weeks, I've been coming over every time I could, coming sometimes when I shouldn't have, neglecting my own family and duties so that somebody would be with her in her last moments, and she would have not had the face of the great unknown or that one familiar face to give her courage. Not that I deserve credit for it. I will expect the same for myself. But thank God it will be the faces of my loved Kim, my blood and flesh. For in my husband and children, I have been more blessed than most. Trials, though, they have been at times. She lived, 
a lonely woman. Lonely with her pride, trying to make folks believe different. Hiding the fact that they just suffered her because she was not cold in the coffin before they were carting her 40 miles away to bury her. Flouting the will of God to do it. Refusing to let her lie in the same earth with those bundrons. But she wanted to go, Mr. Tull said. It was her own wish to lie among her own people. Then why didn't she go alive, I said. Not one of them would have stopped her. With even that little one, almost old enough now to be selfish and stone-hearted like the rest of them. It was her own wish, Mr. Tull said. I heard Aunt say it was. And you would believe Aunt, of course, I said. A man like you would. Don't tell me. I'd believe him about something he couldn't expect to make anything off of by not telling, Mr. Tull said. Don't tell me, I said. A woman's place is with her husband and children, alive or dead. Would you expect me to want to go back to Alabama and leave you and the girls when my time comes, that I left my own will to cast my lot with yours and for better or worse until death and after? Well, folks are different, he said. I should hope so. I've tried to live right in the sight of God and man for the honor and comfort of my Christian husband and the love and respect of my Christian children so that when I lay me down in the consciousness of my duty and reward, I'll be surrounded by loving faces carrying the farewell kiss of each of my loved ones into the reward. Not like Addie Bundren dying alone, hiding her pride and hiding her broken heart glad to go, lying there with her head propped up so she could watch Cash building the coffin, having to watch him so he would not skimp on it, like us not, with those men not worrying about anything except if there was time to earn another three dollars before the rain come and the river got too high to get across it, like us not, if they hadn't decided to make that last load, they would have loaded her into the wagon on a quill and crossed the river first and then stopped to give her time to die what Christian death they would let her except Darl it was the sweetest thing I ever saw sometimes I lose faith in human nature for a time I am assailed by my doubt but always the Lord restores my faith and reveals to me his bountiful love for his creatures not Jewel the one she has always cherished, not him. He was after the three extra dollars. It was Darl, the one that folks say is queer, lazy, pottering about the place no better than ants, with cash, a good carpenter, and always more building than he can get around to, and Jewel always doing something that made him some money or got him talked about, and that near-naked girl always standing over Addie with a fan that every time a body tried to talk to her and cheer her up would answer for her right quick like she was trying to keep anybody from coming near her at all. It was Darl. He'd come to the door and stood there looking at his dying mother. He just looked at her and I felt his bounteous love of the Lord again and his mercy. I saw that with Jewel she had been just pretending but that it was between her and Darl that the understanding and the true love was. He just looked at her, not even coming in where she could see him and get upset, 
knowing that Ant was driving him away and he would never see her again. He said nothing, just looking at her. What do you want, Darl? Dewey Dell said, not stopping the fan, speaking up quick, keeping even him from her. He didn't answer. He just stood and looked at his dying mother, his heart too full for words. Dewey Dell. The first time me and life picked on down the row. Pa doesn't sweat because he will catch his death in the sickness so everybody that comes to help us. And Jewel don't care about anything he's not kin to us and caring, not care kin. And Cash likes sawing the long, hot, sad yellow days up into planks and nailing them to something. And Pa thinks because neighbors will always treat one another that way because he has always been too busy letting neighbors do for him to find out. I did not think that Darl would, that sits at the supper table with his eyes gone further than the food and the lamp, full of the land dug out of his skull and the holes filled with the distance beyond the land. We picked on down the row, the woods getting closer and closer and the secret shade, picking on into secret shade with my sack and life sack. Because I said, will I, <clears throat> because I said, will I, or won't I, when the sack was half full, because I said if the sack was full, when we get to the woods, it won't be me. I said, if it don't mean for me to do it, the sack will not be full, and I'll not turn up the next row if the sack is full. I cannot help it. It will be that I had to do it all the time, and I cannot help it. When we picked on toward the secret shade, and her eyes would draw him together, touching on his hands and my hands, and I didn't say anything. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm picking into your sack. And so it was full, and we came to the end of the row, and I could not help it. And so it was because I could not help it. It was then, and then I saw Darl, and he knew. He said he knew without words, like he told me that Ma is going to die without words. I knew he knew, because if he had said he knew with the words, I would have not believed that he had been there and saw us. But he said he did know, and I said, Are you going to tell Ba? Are you going to kill him? Without the words, I said it, and he said why, without the words. And that's why I can talk to him with knowing, with hating, because he knows. He stands in the door, looking at her. What do you want, Darl? I say. She's going to die, he says. An old turkey buzzard, tall, coming to watch her die, but I can fool them. When is she going to die, I say. Before we get back, he says. Then why are you taking Jewel, I say. I want him to help me load, he says. Tall. Ants keeps on rubbing his knees. His overalls are faded. On one knee, a serge patch cut out of a pair of Sunday pants. Wore iron slick. No man mislikes it more than me, he says. The fellow's got to guess ahead now and then, I say. But come, long and short. There won't be no harm done either way. She'll want to get started right off, he says. It's far enough to Jefferson at best. But the roads is good now, I say. It's fixing to rain tonight, too. 
His folks buries at New Hope, too, not three miles away. But it's like him to marry a woman born a day's hard ride away and have her die on him. He looks out over the land, rubbing his knees. No man so mislikes it, he says. They'll get back in plenty of time, I say. I wouldn't worry none. It means three dollars, he says. Might be it won't be no need for them to rush back, no ways, I say. I hope it. She's a-going, he says. Her mind is set on it. It's a hard life on women, for a fact. Some women. I mind my mammy who lived to seventy or more. Worked every day. Rain or shine, never a sick day since her last chap was born, until one day she kind of looked around her. And then she went and taken that lace-trimmed nightgown she had 45 years and never wore it out of the chest and put it on and lay down on the bed and pulled the covers up and shut her eyes. You all have to look out for Pa the best you can, she says. I'm tired. Ants rubbed his hands on his knees. The Lord giveth, he says. We can hear Cash a-hammering and sawing behind the corner. It's true. Never a truer breath was ever breathed. The Lord giveth, I say. That boy comes up the hill. He's carrying a fish nigh along as he is. He slings it to the ground and grunts. Ha. And spits over his shoulder like a man. Dern nigh long as he is. What's that, I say? A hog? Where'd you get it? Down at the bridge, he says. He turns it over. The underside caked over with dust where it was wet. The eye coated over, humped under the dirt. Are you aiming to leave it laying there? Ant says. I aim to show it to Ma, Barnumon says. He looks towards the door. We can hear the taking, coming out on the draft. Cash too, knocking and hammering at the boards. There's company in there, he says. Just my folks, I say. They'd enjoy to see it too. He says nothing, watching the door. Then he looks down at the fish, laying in the dust. He turns it over with his foot and prods at the eye bump with his toe, gouging at it. Ants is looking out over the land. Vardaman looks at Ants' face, then at the door. He turns, going toward the corner of the house, when Ants calls him without looking around. You clean that fish, Ants says. Vardaman stops. Why can't Dewey Dell clean it, he says. You clean that fish, Ant says. Oh, Pa, Farnaman says. You clean it, Ant says. He don't look around. Farnaman comes back and picks up the fish. It slides out of his hands, smearing wet dirt onto him, and flops down, dirtying itself again, gat-mouthed, goggle-eyed, hiding it in the dust like it was ashamed of being dead like it was in a hurry to get back hit again. Bartman cusses it. He cusses it like a grown man, standing astraddle of it. Ants don't look around. Bartman picks it up again. He goes on around the house, toting it in both arms like an arm full of wood, it overlapping him on both ends, end to tail. Darn that big as he is. Ants' wrists dangle out of his sleeves never seen him with a shirt on that looked like it was his in all my life. They all looked like Jewel might have 
They all looked like Jewel. He might have given him his old ones. Not Jewel, though. He has long arms, even if he is spindling. Except for the lack of sweat. You could tell that he ain't been nobody else's but answers that way without no mistake. His eyes look like pieces of burnt-out cinder fixed in his face, looking out over the land. When the shadow touches the steps, he says, It's five o'clock. Just as I get up, Cora comes to the door and says it's time to get on. Ants reaches for his shoes. Now, Mr. Bungeon, Cora says, don't you get up now. He puts his shoes on, stomping into them, like he does everything, like he's hoping all the time he really can't do it, and he can quit trying to. When we go up the hall, we can hear them clumping on the door, like he was iron shoes. He comes toward the door where she is, blinking his eyes, kind of looking ahead of himself, before he sees, like he's hoping to find her setting up, in a chair maybe, or maybe sweeping, and looks into the door in that surprised way like he looks in and finds her still in bed every time, and Dewey Dell still fanning her with a fan. He stands there, like you don't aim to move again or nothing else. Well, I reckon we better get on, Cora says. I got to feed the chickens. It's fixing to rain, too. Clouds like that don't lie and the cotton-making every day the Lord sends. That'll be something else for him. Cash is still trimming at the boards. If there's here a thing we can do, Cora says. Ants will let us know, I say. Ants don't look at us. He looks around, blinking, in that surprised way, like he had wore himself down being surprised, and was even surprised at that. If Cash just works that careful in my barn... I told Ant it likely won't be no need, I say. I hope to it. Her mind is set on it, he says. I reckon she's bound to go. It comes to all of us, Cora says. Let the Lord comfort you. About that corn, I say. I tell him again I will help him out if he gets into a tight, with her sick and all. Like most folks around here. I don't help him so much already I can't quit now. I am to get to it today, he says. Seems like I can't get my mind on nothing. Maybe she'll hold out till you are laid by, I say. If God wills it, he says. Let him comfort you, Cora says. If Cash just works that careful in my barn. He looks up when we pass. Don't reckon I'll get you this week, he says. Day no rush, I say. Whenever you get around to it. We get into the wagon. Cora sets the cake box on her lap. It's fixing to rain, sure. I don't know what it'll do, Cora says. I just don't know. Poor ants, I said. She kept him at work for thirty odd years. I reckon she is tired. And I reckon she'll be behind him for thirty years more, Kate says. Or if it ain't her, I'll get another one before cotton picking. I reckon Cash and Darrell can get married now, Eula says. That poor boy, Cora says. That poor little tyke. What about Jewel, Kate says. He can too, Eula says. <laughs> Kate says. 
I reckon he will. I reckon so. I reckon there's more gals than one around here that don't want to see Jewel tied down. Well, they don't need to worry. Why, Kate, Cora says. The wagon begins to rattle. The poor little tyke, Cora says. It's fixing to rain this night. Yes, sir. Rattling wagon is mighty dry weather for a bird's owl. But that'll be cured. It will for a fact. She ought to take them cakes after she said she would, Kate says. Ants. During that road. And it fixing to rain, too. I can stand here and same as see it at second sight. A shutting down behind them like a wall. Shutting down betwixt them and my given promise. I do the best I can. Much as I can get my mind on anything. But darn them boys. A laying there, right up to my door, where every bad luck that comes and goes is bound to find it. I told Addie it wanted any luck living on the road when I came by here, and she said, for the world like a woman, get up and move then. But I told her it want no luck in it, because the Lord put the roads for traveling. Why he laid them down flat on earth, when he aims for something to be always moving. He makes it long ways, like a road or a horse or a wagon. But when he aims for something to stay put, he makes it up and down ways, like a tree or a man. And he so never aims for folks to live on the road. Because which gets there first, I says, the road or the house. Did you ever know him to set a road down by a house, I says. No, you never, I says. Because it's always men can't rest till they get to the house set where everybody that passes in the wagon can spit in the doorway, keeping the folks restless and wanting to get up and go somewhere else when he aimed for them to stay put like a tree or a stand of corn. Because if he'd aimed for a man to be always moving and going somewhere else, when he put a man long ways on his belly like a snake, it stands to reason he would putting it where every bad luck prowling can find it and come straight to my door, charging me taxes on top of it, making me pay for cash, having to get them carpenter notions, when if it hadn't been for no road come there, he wouldn't have got them, falling off of churches and lifting no hand in six months, and me and Addie slaving and a-slaving, when there's plenty of sawing on this place he could do if he's got to saw. And Darl, too, taking me out of him, darn them. It ain't that I'm afraid to work. I always just fed me and mine and kept a roof above us. It's that they would shorthand me just because he tends to his own business, just because he's got his eyes falling the land all the time. I says to them, he was all right at first, but those eyes full of land because the land laid up and down ways then. It was until that ear road came and switched the land round long ways, and his eyes still full of the land, that they began to threaten me out of him, trying to shorthand me with the law, making me pay for it. She was well, and hale as ear a woman ever was, except for that road, just laying down, resting herself in her own bed, asking not of one, 
Are you sick, Addie? I said. I am not sick, she said. You lay you down and rest you, I said. I know you are not sick. And you're just tired. And you lay down and rest. I am not sick, she said. I will get up. Lay still and rest, I said. You are just tired. You can get up tomorrow. And she was laying there, well and hale as you a woman ever wore, except for that road. I never sent for you, I said. I take you to witness I never sent for you. I know you didn't, Peabody said. I bound that. Where is she? She's laying down, I said. She's just a little tired, but she'll... Get out in here, Ants, he said. Go sit on the porch a while. And now I got to pay for it. Me, without a tooth in my head, hoping to get ahead enough so I could get my mouth fixed, where I could eat God's own victuals as a man should, and her hail and well as ear woman in the land until that day. Got to pay for the way for them boys to have to go away and earn it. And now I can see the same as second sight the rain shutting down betwixt us, but coming up the road like a darn man, like it won't hear other house to rain on the living land. I've heard men cuss their luck, and right, for they were sinful men. But I do not say it's a curse on me, because I have done no wrong to be cussed by. I'm not religious, I reckon, but peace is in my heart. I know it was. I've done things, but neither better nor worse than pretend other like. And I know that old Marster will care for me as he is a sparrow that falls. But it seems hard that a man in his need could be so flouted by a road. Barman comes around the old house, bloody as a hog to his knees, and that ear fish chopped up with an axe like as not, or maybe throw it away for him to lie about the dogs to eat it. Let reckon I ain't no call except no more of him than of his man-grown brothers. He comes along, watching the house quiet, and sits on the steps. Ooh, he says. I'm pure tired. Go wash them hands, I say. But couldn't no woman strive harder than Addie to make them right? Man and boy, I'll say that for her. It was full of blood and guts as a hog, he says. But I just can't seem to get no heart into anything. With this here weather sapping me too. Pa, he says. Is Ma sick some more? Go wash them hands, I say but I just can't seem to get no heart into it. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.